Glad to have you here. Happy New Year. Um, for us in the, I want to invite you to go ahead and grab a Bible um, for a, a, a kind of a brief teaching time. But today is going to be uh, participatory. So I'm sure that uh, some of you will be excited about that. And some of you are like, I was looking forward to sleeping during your sermon. So sorry about that. But um, we're going to be in Psalm 139, which is basically right in the middle of your Bible. If you have one of these red Bibles, it's on page 548. We'll be this morning. But um, in the Christian calendar years, many of you know we don't follow as a church exactly the Hallmark calendar. We have a Christian calendar that's been around for way before Hallmark. And uh, in that calendar year, we are actually at the beginning, uh, or you know, what you might call the, the middle of Christmas tide. And if you're not familiar with Christmas tide, it is the 12 days between Christmas and the Feast of Epiphany, which will be, I think, January 6th. And historically during Advent, Christians kind of celebrated Christmas a little bit differently than the way we do it. So Advent, during Advent, Christians fasted actually all the way up until Christmas Eve. Some of you maybe grew up in traditions like this. So they waited till Christmas Eve to put up their trees. You sang no carols until Christmas Eve. Um, and, and then there would be 12 days following Christmas. So on Christmas Eve, you'd have a big worship service and you'd kind of break the fast, you'd exchange gifts. And then you had 12 days. Think about this. We, we don't do this very well as a, as a society, right? Like we, we, we feast and celebrate all the way up through Advent. Uh, and then it's just like, it's over. And then some of you have already, you've already tossed your tree and like it's, Christmas is over and you're moving into the new year. Now it's like, gosh, I gotta go back to work tomorrow. You have nothing to look forward to. But in the Christian tradition, 12 days was actually 12 days to feast. Christmas tide is a time of feasting and, and there would be gifts exchanged. And there would be a celebration of the story of the incarnation of Jesus. And so in that spirit, this first Sunday of the new year, 2023, I have a gift for you. I want to actually give you a gift this morning. One of the most important gifts that you can ever give anyone, that you can give yourself, that you can give anyone this season, is to give ourselves the gift of prayerful reflection. So that's the gift I want to offer up to you this morning, is the gift of prayerful reflection. And I want to do that as a community and, and most importantly, I want to offer you that gift in the presence of God. Um, and, and by peripheral reflection, it simply means this practice, this ancient practice of opening up our interior lives in the presence of God for the purpose of transformation. That's what I want to offer you today. And so I want to use our teaching time this morning to guide you through that reflection process and I want to use this simple but powerful little tool, um, an exercise, reflection exercise that's been used for hundreds of years by princes of Jesus to help them with this work of reflection. It's called the prayer of examine, but I want to take the prayer of examine and apply it to our, our year. And as we end one year and kind of come into a new calendar year, I want to pause and offer up a gift of reflection. So I want to teach for a few minutes, but most importantly, I want to encourage you to go ahead and get a pen. Um, you'll need a pen, or if you want to get out, you know, Evernote, or note, I know you're not, you typically say you don't have your phones out in church, but you'll need uh, some sort of note-taking device. Um, and there's a handout you should have gotten. If you don't have a handout, uh, just lift up your hand and let us know. We will bring you a handout. But you need a handout. Somebody, who, somebody that has it just lift it up. So it's a two-sided uh, thing. Somebody, somebody lift that up. There you go. It just looks just like that. It's a white piece of paper, two sides. On one, there's a timeline. On the other, there's four boxes. Okay. So make sure you get that. You'll need that. But before we do that, uh, let's turn our attention to Psalm 139. I want to read these two verses, Psalm 139, 23 to 24, to set up our time. These are the words of David, King David, psalmist, poet, warrior king, lover of God, sinner. Search me, God. Know my heart. Test me. And know my anxious concerns. See if there's any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I love the message translation, Eugene Peterson's translation of this. It says, investigate my life, O God. This is kind of terrifying. Find out everything about me. Cross-examine and test me. Get a clear picture of what I'm about. See for yourself whether I've done anything wrong, then guide me on the road to eternal life. In these verses, David is engaging in the practice of prayerful reflection. 
opening up his interior life in the presence of God for the purpose of transformation. Notice the cluster of relational words inviting this kind of deeper mutual knowledge, God knowing him and him knowing God, right? Those two things always have to be held together in the Christian life. Notice he says, search me, God. Know my heart. Test me. Probe me. Know my concerns. Know me, God. In the, word, in the Bible, the word know isn't like search for information. The word know is an intimate word, right? In Genesis, it's used of sexual intimacy. Know me. I want to have deep communion with you, God. See me. See if there's any offensive way in me. And then lead me, shepherd me, guide me, pilot me. One of the most important rhythms for our spiritual health is regularly creating space to pay attention and to name what's happening inside of us in response to the experiences of our lives. Paying attention to our values, paying attention to our priorities, paying attention to our emotions and feelings. Yes, you, some of you don't know this, but you have emotions. You're an emotional being. God created you with emotions. Emotions are not bad. They're to be discipled. They're a part of what it means to be fully human. Paying attention to your desires and your longings and your aches. Paying attention to your reactions. The stories that you're telling yourself about what it means to be human. About your neighbor, about yourself, about God. And then how all of this gets embodied in our habits, in our decisions, in our actions, in our relationships. That's the work, that's the work of prayerful reflection. And, and one of the things I want us to see here before we jump into doing this and practicing this is David points out the danger of a non-reflective life. Notice the connection that David draws between the work of reflection and his relationships. Why is it so important for us to slow down to do this work of prayerful reflection, right? Like everything in our world conspires against us doing this work. We live in a world that, as one theologian says, is a virtual conspiracy against interiority. So why is it important for us to do this work? One, if we don't intentionally slow down and pay attention, we can then unintentionally harm ourselves and those around us. Notice David says... David has this assumption that deep within himself lies hidden and habitual patterns of what he calls concerns, if you have that translation. That can also be translated anxious thoughts, thought processes that lead to internal distress or mental anguish. Do any of you know what that feels like? Mental processes that lead to anguish and distress, anxiety, If these concerns are left unattended, David says, they have the potential to sabotage our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. He says, know my concerns, see if there's any offensive way in me. That word offensive means any action that might cause suffering or harm or shock or anger to those around me. It's a relational word. So to not reflect is to affect those around us. We've all experienced this, right? Like you've probably experienced this over Christmas, the biggest emotional trigger season, you know, known to humanity. You encounter a person or a situation that seems to hook you or trigger what can only be described as like an automatic reactive response. Like somebody just steps on a landmine in your soul and all of a sudden you find just a volcanic eruption of anger, of anxiety, of rage, fear, shame, sadness, impatience. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves yelling at a toddler, yelling at uh, our 85-year-old grandmother, yelling at that cousin that we only see every so often, probably for good reason, We find ourselves fighting with people. Or maybe you're not a fighter, maybe you're a fleer, and you run away from people, and you close up. Or maybe you just get completely flooded and paralyzed, and you find yourself unable to speak or move, for that matter. 
See, David says that the presence of this internal anxiety, if it's not dealt with, creates the potential for a reactive life, a kind of reactivity that does violence to our souls and to our relationships if we aren't regularly engaging in rhythms of reflection and repentance and repair. That's the point of reflection. Look inside me, God. Know me. See if there's any offensive way in me so that you can lead me in the everlasting way. See, this is the, what I call the cycle of reactivity. This is the cycle. We, we find ourselves living with experiences, right? From our earliest childhood, we have all kinds of experiences that as we live them, they get interpreted internally in certain kinds of ways. And then those become kind of internalized belief systems, narrative scripts, patterns that can cause anxiety if they're not examined regularly and brought into the healing light of God's presence. And then we live reactively, and somebody steps on one of those triggers, and we react, and then we do damage. And for some of us, this is, this is a pattern of life. We just find ourselves harming ourselves, harming people, because we go through this cycle over and over and over again, and we live a reactive life. And what David's inviting us to do is to disrupt that cycle of reactivity through, next slide, a rhythm of reflection. Reflection disrupts the cycle. It doesn't always stop us from reacting, but after we do damage, we, we stop and we reflect, and hopefully we repent, and we learn, and we grow, and we heal, and we repair what's been damaged and broken, the trust that's lost. Theologian Trevor Hudson said, we don't change from experience. We change when we reflect on our experience. That's why you can be chronologically 60, but emotionally and psychologically a teenager. It's not about your chronological age. It's about how deeply are you engaging in reflection, bringing this stuff before God to be healed and transformed. That's why some of you are 25 and you're deeply mature because you do this work in a way that even your parents don't and you find yourself as the only sane adult at Christmas. That's what psalmist, the psalmist says in 119, I've got more wisdom than my elders because I allow you to teach me, God. You can have 20 or 30 or 40 years of the same experience and never really grow and mature. We have to open ourselves to this work of reflection, this deep interior work, and it's painful work. This week, we, uh, we had a great Christmas. It was awesome. It was like one of those ones where you're like, finally, Christmas is heading in like the right trajectory. We wake up Sunday. It's beautiful. Nobody's sick. Nobody's fighting which is just rare when you have four kids and you have a big family outside of that. And we go to Louisville to see our family. We have a great trip. We come back on Tuesday afternoon with a full list of all the ways we're going to rest and enjoy each other. It's been such a good 48 hours. And I open up the back door. I unlock the back door, walk into my kitchen, and it literally looks like a scene out of our favorite Christmas movie, Home Alone, like the wet bandits had, had just invaded our home. We have water falling from our ceilings, from our second floor bathroom down into our kitchen. And then that wasn't even the best part. Then we go down to the basement after we've already freaked out about the kitchen. We go down to the basement, our ceiling is collapsed and our entire finished basement is underwater. Now, I, I, I claim no special privilege here. I know there were thousands of people across Indianapolis that had pipes burst, right? But this shouldn't happen, right? This shouldn't happen to pecs. That's why you get pecs pipes. This stuff doesn't happen. Now, I don't know. I'm not a plumber, and I'm thankful for plumbers, especially this week. We were able to have somebody come and, and turn that off, and we're in the process of cleaning all of that up. But I don't know how that happens, but the point is the plumber basically says to me, there was some sort of vulnerability in your piping that was exposed by freezing temperatures that compromised the integrity of the pipe and caused this damage, and similarly, I would say in our own lives, when we're not regularly examining our inner lives in the presence of God, we have vulnerabilities that are just waiting to be exposed. And when the freeze or the heat hits them, they will cause massive damage to our relationship with God and to those we probably want to love the most but simply can't. If we don't deal with what Theologians call our shadow side, or the, that sinful part of us that remains hidden and, and dark. That's why they call it a shadow side. We can't see it. 
If we don't deal with it, others will suffer from it. If I don't deal with it, my wife has to deal with it. My kids have to deal with it. My grandchildren will deal with it one day. They're all going to be in therapy, right? We already know that. But like, it's going to be so much worse if I don't deal with it. I have a responsibility to do that. So if we don't do this work, if we don't slow down to pay attention intentionally, we will unintentionally cause harm to ourselves and harm to other people. And if we don't slow down to pay attention, I would argue we also rob ourselves of intimacy with God, intimacy with God and his invitations into transformation. It's in these moments of pain and suffering and hardship where God is inviting us to be transformed, right? So, so that's the raw material that God uses to form us and to shape us, to draw us closer to him, to bring us into the work of formation. And that's why I think David is happily doing what many of us have a hard time doing, right? When things get difficult, we want to turn away from God. We want to run away from the presence of God. We want to run away from the love of God. But David invites God, no, come and know me. Come and search me. Examine the inner terrain of my soul. Surface these patterns. Bring them to a level of conscious awareness within me. Now, here's the thing. He's not inviting God to know something about him that God doesn't already know. God is omniscient. God knows everything. David is inviting God to help him know himself as God knows him. Verse one, he already said, Lord, you've searched me and you know me. So there's no new information here. This is not uh, some sort of a um, FBI raid on David's soul where he's looking for, you know, incriminating evidence. He's saying, just, just draw near to me. I'm going to open myself up and bring all that I am before you. And would you give me the insight to see myself as you see me so that I can know you better, so that I can change and I can grow through the circumstances, through the relationships, through the reactivity, through the anxiety. That's actually the portal to intimacy and transformation. And, and so as we engage in this work, I just I say that as an encouragement and I'm done with my sermon. I say that as an encouragement because I now want to invite you into this work. And, and I want you to have the same truths with you as you engage in this work that, that David has in this prayer. And, and so let me just draw them to the front so we see them as we engage in this work. We don't engage with fear. We don't engage with shame. We don't engage with regret. We don't engage with bitterness or anxiety. But we engage with a sort of confidence in God. So just three things that you need to know from this passage as you engage in this work. One, God encircles our lives with his loving presence. We don't examine ourselves. We don't do the work of prayerful reflection alone. We do it in the presence of God with the spirit of God. And this is really important to remember that God is always present. He's always active in our lives. You notice throughout this passage, he's intimately involved with the creative process that brings us to life. His eyes saw us at our most vulnerable in the womb with our mothers. He knows our life story before we draw our first breath. And I love verse five. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. Everywhere we go, everything we think, everything we do is immersed in the presence of God, the purposes of God, the power of God. And this is so important as we engage in reflection because it creates the sort of relational safety and security and trust to do the work of productive reflection. See, many of us do unproductive reflection, right? We reflect out of shame. We reflect with anxiety. We reflect out of a sense of abandonment. And then we find ourselves ruminating in a destructive way, and that's why we don't like to reflect. But this is a productive reflection that sees, no, my life is encircled by God. There's nothing that God doesn't already know. I'm just simply inviting God to bring to my attention what he already knows, knowing that God loves me as he's doing that. Secondly, remember that God is holding us and transforming us through the painful experiences of our lives. All the ways that David talks in this passage, he knows this firsthand. He says, I've tried to escape his presence. I've tried to flee. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, even the darkness is not dark to you. David had some dark moments in his life, right? Bathsheba, sexual abuse and adultery. We have all kinds of his own kids, a failure as a dad. His own son rebels against him, takes the kingdom, commits incest against his, I mean, there's just a lot of brokenness in David's story. And yet David says, even despite all of that, you are holding me and transforming me through those painful experiences. 
We can't change the pain, but we can change our interpretation of it and our reactions to it. God is not afraid of our sin, our wounds, our pain. He has entered into it. He knows it. He has entered into it in Jesus to save and redeem. So we have nothing to be afraid of. And then thirdly, God invites us to a new future and a new way of living. Lead me in the way everlasting. This is the everlasting way. Reflection leads us to the everlasting way. There's a new way of life that's offered to us as we engage in this work of reflection. God says, hey, I know you're going down this path, but trust me, this is the path that I wanna lead you on. Would you just open yourself to me? Would you just know that any pain that you, and it feels like it's inflicted on you, any oppression that you feel like maybe you're experiencing as a result of this reflection, is a part of the way that I'm going to shape and transform you into a person of love. So God promises a new future, a new way as we engage in the work of reflection. So what I'd like to do for the remainder of our time is just to lead you in some guided reflection. I don't, I don't know if Miles left, if Miles is still in here, um, but, uh, oh yeah, there you are. I, I wanna get some, uh, if we get a little musical kind of instrumental behind, because there's no good reflection without at least a little bit of good music. And since we have a jazz aficionado here, I'm sure that we'll have something good. But I want to just take some time to use this formation tool called the Prayer of Examine. It was developed by Ignatius in the 16th century as part of his spiritual exercises as a way to become more aware of God's loving presence and how we respond to that presence. It's meant to be used on a daily basis, and our hope would be that you would take this and not just do this annually, but make this a daily rhythm, five, five minutes a day, 10 minutes a day, either at the beginning of your day or the ending of your day. But we're just going to start here, and you can kind of just think of this as us teeing you up for conversations that you need to have with God, reflection that you need to do this week. So I realize for some of you, you're like internal processors, and you're, gonna, you're like, there's no way in 20 minutes, I'm going to, okay, just fine. Just, let's just start here. Let this be a little teaser. For some of you, this will be the longest 20 minutes of your life, because you are not introspective at all. So we're going to find that happy medium of 20 minutes, four movements, basically, if you want to grab that handout and a pen or a pencil or an Evernote notes app, whatever. Four basic movements to the exam, and I've written them there on your handout. Remember, rejoice, repent, renew. I want to give you about five minutes in each of these sections to just simply look back on 2022 and look ahead to this coming year and just jot down some responses. These are just prompts. You might have other prompts, other things that come to mind, but these are just prompts to get you thinking and reflecting and writing just so you don't have, uh, you know, uh, nothing to start with. You don't have a starting point or a template. And so we're going to start with remember. And what I want to do is just give you a little scripture for each section. And then I want to ask you some questions that may prompt some thinking and then just give you some blank space. One of the primary sins of God's people throughout the ages, throughout scripture, is that they forget. One of the primary warnings, don't forget. Remember. Psalm 5.1 says, listen, God, please pay attention. Can you make sense of these ramblings, my groans and my cries? King God, I need your help. Every morning you'll hear me at it again. He's talking about prayer. Every morning I lay out the pieces of my life on your altar and I watch for the fire to descend. Psalm 143.5, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all you have done. I reflect on the work of your hands. So in this movement, we just want to take the scattered pieces of our story, our lives, the experiences, the relationships, the habits that we've lived this last year. And we just want to ask the question, what have I lived? That's it. What have I lived? Not judging what you've lived, just simply holding before God and saying, God, would you by your Holy Spirit call to mind what's most important from this last year? And on the back of there, you'll see that timeline, right? And above the line, you can write maybe like the good things that God brought into your life this year. Good experiences, good relationships, health, flourishing life. And maybe below the line, you maybe pay attention to some of the negative things, some of the painful things, some of the hurts and the wounds and the betrayals and the sadness and the grief and the loss that you're walking through. And you just jot those down on that timeline. What have I lived? What happened to me this year? How did I think and feel in response to that? Not just what happened, but how did it affect me internally? What did it cause me to think about God, about myself, about other people? What did I learn? What's confusing to me that seems to have no answer immediately? 
What patterns do I notice as I put this all together? How am I invited to grow through it? Again, you don't have to list everything. Just ask the Spirit to bring to mind what's most necessary and jot it down. So let me just take a moment. Let's take a deep breath. (laughs) Take a deep breath in. Take a deep breath out. Let's just sit in quiet for a moment, and I'll pray for us, and then you can start. Just ask God to come and to be with us, to guide us. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Test us and know our concerns. Come, Holy Spirit, gather the scattered fragments of our year and recenter them upon your presence, your power, your purposes in our lives. Bring to mind those experiences, feelings, thoughts, relationships that you want us to pay attention to. We ask this in Jesus' name. Let's take a moment to remember.
it goes on to detail both good things and hard things. How about hundreds of years of multi-generational slavery to a megalomaniac? So the thanksgiving is not for those things. The thanksgiving is for the deliverance through those things, that God has not abandoned us in those things. So we give thanks for the good things. We say, thank you, God, for your blessings. And then we see the brokenness, the evil, the injustice, the oppression. And I I love verse 14. He led Israel through his faithful love endures forever. So he's not abandoned us in those things. He, He will lead us through. He is leading us through. And so we don't give thanks for those bad things themselves. We give thanks that God has not let go of us in the midst of those, that he's growing us, that he's transforming us, that he's changing us, even as we feel powerless against certain forces or structures or systems or relational dynamics, God is at work. And so we don't lose heart. So let's just take a moment to give thanks, just to say, God, I thank you that you are good. I thank you that you are present with me. Thank you for this blessing. Thank you for this unexpected, surprising joy and hope that you brought into my life this year. And then God, thank you for even the hard things. God, I thank you that you're with me. And and we can lament those also as we rejoice. We can lament that they're there and we can ask God to deliver us, to rescue us, to save us, to transform us. And he has promised that he will. And so let's just take a moment to rejoice, to lament, and to cry out to God for deliverance. into repentance. Acts 3.19 says, therefore repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Repentance leads to clarity. It leads to restoration. It leads to refreshing. And the reason that some of us are stuck in our spiritual lives, stuck in our relationships is because we've done, not done the hard work of repentance. 
So as we look back on our year and we examine our habits, we examine our relationships, we examine our feelings and our thoughts, we want to pay attention to patterns of sin that maybe have crept up into our lives, maybe even unnoticed until this moment. Little ways, and I'm not just talking about like, I've killed somebody. Okay, like you wouldn't be here if you killed somebody probably, but I'm talking about like the internal movements of your heart that are underneath that. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, and he goes deep into the heart and he says, it's not just about what you do, it's about the motivation underneath that. And so I'm talking about patterns of envy. I'm talking about patterns of greed. I'm talking about patterns of jealousy, of bitterness, of anger, of malice, where you are killing brothers and sisters in your heart with your thoughts and your desires. You're having revenge fantasies, right? Like that's the level I'm talking about. Mistrust, where you stop trusting God, you've stopped trusting other people. That's sin, that's unbelief. It's idolatry, it's immorality, it's lawlessness, the Bible says. And so we wanna look at that and name it, both sins of omission, things that we haven't done that we should have done, as well as commission, things that we did that we shouldn't have done. And so repentance is just simply turning away from trusting in yourself to be the arbiter of right and wrong, trusting in yourself to be your own salvation, to be your own Lord, your own savior, your own judge, and turning to God to trust him. Say, I don't have to get back at that person. I can forgive them because you already have forgiven me. So it's trusting in the one who will bring all things to right. So repentance is confessing, agreeing with God about those things. And then the the part of repentance we often miss is it's also about repairing what's been broken. Luke 19, when Jesus confronts Zacchaeus about his thievery, about his robbery, his stealing, he doesn't just say, feel sorry about what you did, robbing your brothers and sisters. Look at what Zacchaeus' response is. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord. If I have extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. And notice Jesus' response. He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't say, that's not necessary. What does he say? Today, salvation has come to this house. Salvation is not just about confession. It's about repair. It's about reconciliation. It's about restoration. It's about doing what needs to be done to repair what's been broken in the power of the Spirit. And so we want to also ask God to help us to move towards repairing those things that we've broken, relationships that have been broken that need to be reconciled. Like, do we at least have the hope that they can be? Even if we can't control it, do we at least pray that they will be? Do we pray good for those people? Do we work for their good? Are we pursuing a relationship of repair? If we notice that we've done wrong to somebody, are we going to them and making that right? So let's just take a moment to to ask God to show us, to repent, to confess our sins, to ask for God's forgiveness, and to commit ourselves Just as Jesus said to the person who goes to the altar, if you notice you have a sin against your brother, leave your gift at the altar, go make it right, and then come back. And so here, maybe this is just a moment for us to commit to this week repairing damage that's been done and doing the best that we can, as Paul says, to live at peace with all men. Let's take a moment to do that, and then we'll we'll finish with renew.
hey, this last movement is about looking forward to this year. Isaiah 43, do not remember the past events. Pay no attention to things of old. Look, I'm about to do something new. Even now it is coming. Do you not see it? Indeed, I will make a way in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. Isaiah here is not telling us to not reflect on the past. Clearly, the rest of the Bible talks about that. What he's saying is don't live there. Don't live in Egypt when you've been brought into the promised land. Don't dwell in the past. Don't define yourself by your past. Be open to the new things that God's doing, even if your life feels like a desert, even if it feels like a wilderness, which I realize many of us emotionally and spiritually and psychologically, we feel that right now. But God says, be open to something new. Don't just let the cycle of the past define the horizons of the future and what you think is a horizon of possibility for your future because God is a God of surprises. God is a God of resurrection. God brings life from death. That's the cycle of Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection. That's the cycle of redemption. And it's the cycle of our lives. And so God is always waiting to do a new thing in our lives if we have the courage to perceive it, to step into it by faith. And so I wanna throw just these prompts on the screen. And and as you think about next year, maybe just jot down in that renew box, just some opportunities in front of you for this year. Just four basic questions that we wanna ask about the coming year that might help ground us more deeply in God's loving presence. What spiritual practices do I need to help me abide more deeply in Jesus's love this year? How might God be inviting me to better care for my whole person? Not just my mind, but my body, my emotions, my spirit, my soul. What relationships do I need to support me in this next season? Do I need a friend? Do I need a therapist? Do I need a spiritual director? Do I need a pastor? Do I need a a sage, a wise, seasoned person to come alongside? Do I need a truth teller because I'm surrounded by yes people and I need somebody to come and tell me the truth this year? I need to stop deceiving myself. I need relationships where people are not afraid to tell me the truth. And I'm the kind of person who's open to receiving that truth. What gifts, burdens, and limitations do I need to pay attention to so that I can bless others in Jesus' name? What things can't I do? What limitations have been placed on me by God that I have no control over, that I have to live within, that I need to stop trying to transcend so that I can better give more of myself to other people? Just take a moment to jot down some responses and then I'll lead us into communion and we'll pray together.
after Jesus had been raised from the dead, one of my favorite stories of his encounter with his disciples is in John chapter 21. Jesus comes intentionally seeking his disciples who've just abandoned him at the cross and he goes to restore them. He, come, he comes to bring them back in and to commission them and send them out as those who would spread the good news about him. But this is the, this like poignant moment of they have failed. And, and yet just, I, I want you to imagine yourself in the stories we close. Just, would you just imagine yourself being Simon Peter? He, he's on the boat fishing. He looks and he sees Jesus on the shore. He drips down naked and he jumps into the water. He's so desperate to get back into relationship with Jesus. And would you just imagine yourself standing with Jesus on the beach, Jesus having just cooked a breakfast to serve you, whatever your year looked like in 2022, however much of a failure, however much shame you're carrying, however much guilt you're carrying, however much anxiety you have about what's ahead, just would you just imagine yourself in the presence of Jesus and Jesus speaking these words over you. This is his invitation to us, all of us. The same invitation to Peter is our invitation now. Just hear these words and enter into this and receive this as an invitation for yourself. When they'd eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. The second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus's questions to Simon Peter were not an interrogation designed to shame Peter. They were an invitation into a deeper love. Jesus essentially saying, I have done everything to show you how much I love you. Now, would you just love me? Would you just trust me? Stop reacting out of a sense of abandonment and living as if you don't have my love, as if my redemption's not gonna win in the end, as if you don't have everything you need. I've done it all for you. Now would you come and would you just love me deeply? And then would you just love others as I've loved you? The great commandment. And that's our invitation as we come to communion. That's our invitation for this prayer of examine, this prayerful reflection. It's not about interrogating ourselves and, and shaming and condemning. This is just an invitation to, to see Jesus loving us and inviting us into a deeper experience of his love this year. Jesus, the one who came, who lived the life that we couldn't live, who died the death that we should have died, who rose again and brought the kingdom of God to this earth in his life, death, and resurrection. He now stands before us, inviting us to come, to feast on him, to come and abide with him, to come and commune with him in a deeper way and find a flourishing that many of us can't imagine as possible. If we will just turn away from trusting in ourselves, we will come and we will trust in Jesus. And as he says, eat his flesh and drink his blood. Make him the organizing center of our lives. Be his disciples, follow him. Do what he says. Respond to his love. That's what communion's about, friends. It's about coming to the table to feast with Jesus. It's a foretaste of what we're gonna be doing for all eternity as God brings his kingdom to this earth. We feast with Jesus. We love Jesus. We live for Jesus. And so if you're a disciple of Jesus, we want to invite you to come and receive communion. We'll have stations here at the front. We'll have some, uh, some, some of these glasses here. There's wine in the goblets, the chalices. If you'd like grape juice or gluten-free options, they're in the basket. But we'll have stations here. We'll say a blessing over you. You take some time just to, to confess your sins, to respond as you feel appropriate before you come. If you're not a disciple of Jesus, we're so glad that you're here. We'd ask for you not to come. This is not just a religious ritual to be performed mindlessly, right? This is, a, this is a family meal to be shared by disciples of Jesus. So we'd ask that you stay in your seat as others come. So glad that you're here. Or that you put your faith in Jesus and come and trust him maybe for the first time today. Well, let's just uh, confess our sins. Bless you. Let's confess our sins together. And then you come as you feel led. I'll pray for us and you come as you feel led. Let's say these words.